Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Vayera, which is Hebrew for, and I appeared. The word Vayera is used by God in a statement to Moshe about how he appeared to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as El Shaddai, a name for a variety of revelation that does not openly disrupt the course of nature. Throughout the book of Genesis, we read about how God aided the patriarchs during times of famine, various conflicts, and even helped them to accumulate wealth. But none of those interventions directly challenged the laws of nature, which is about to change in this parasha, as God is preparing to bend the earthly reality on a scale that was previously unknown to the patriarchs. Instead of using the name El Shaddai, God reveals himself to Moshe in a different way, in the form of or through the essence of the name Hashem. Rashi explains that, quote, Hashem represents God as the one who carries out his promises. For God was now prepared to fulfill his pledge to free Israel and bring them to the land, end quote. If you remember from last week, at the conclusion of Parashat Shemot, Moshe complains to God and questions how the Jews will be rescued from an oppressive state of slavery and persecution. Parashat Vayera is a continuation of this conversation, whereby God rebukes Moshe for questioning his ways and says to him, quote, I am Hashem, which is considered to be God's highest manifestation, as it is a name that signifies mercy. The children of Israel are about to witness a series of miracles and a form of redemption that is based upon the demonstration of this divine attribute. But Vayera, and Parashat Bo next week, is very much about the tension between God's ultimate power over nature and the limits of human control, which is a message that can be relevant for our environmental dilemma today. When God appears to Moshe, he is told of the four expressions of redemption that God will employ to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. The expressions are as follows. First, God would end the burdens of slavery. Second, remove the Jews from Egypt. Third, redeem them, which is an allusion to the splitting of the Sea of Reeds. And fourth, he would take them with the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Moshe and his brother Aaron are then instructed to appear before Pharaoh to appeal for the release of the Jewish people, although they are told by God that Pharaoh would refuse. Moshe and Aaron were two individuals charged by God to work as instruments for the Jewish people in fulfilling God's promise. This promise involved realizing the covenant, which assures the land of Israel to the descendants of Abraham. Through Moshe and Aaron, the world was to see that the finger and the hand of God were at work, enacting their redemption. God, of course, is not thought to literally have a body. They are metaphors used to describe the physical mechanics that will exercise their superiority over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. After Pharaoh and his magicians contend the marvels that Moshe and Aaron produce, God's handiwork, so to speak, commences with a series of plagues that inflict great suffering upon Egypt. In this parasha, 
we read about seven of these plagues, which are blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, an epidemic, boils, and hail. These will come to constitute seven of ten plagues whereby God exacts a myriad of punishments on Egypt. Even though the parashah concludes with the assumption that more plagues are to follow, Pharaoh still won't release the children of Israel, as we are told that, quote, Pharaoh continued to sin, and he made his heart stubborn, he and his servants, end quote. I would be remiss if I didn't discuss the significance of the plagues in this parashah, as they are notably ecological. It is a section of the Torah that demands an ecologically valuable message and a radical reorientation to the earth as a subject within the text. I say this because, according to traditional rabbinic interpretation, God is warping the laws of nature, which provides the space for miracles to occur. But how much autonomy does the earth have in this section of the book of Exodus? Is the earth working with God to actively resist human action? How is God working through nature? Or put another way, how is the voice of the earth reflecting God's voice to cry out against injustice? While this may raise some complicated theological questions, I do want to make clear that these ruminations do not challenge God's eminence. Asking whether the earth has a voice is not pantheism. The plagues in Parashat Vayara are prompting us to question the human role within creation. As humans, we exist within nature, not apart from it. Nature is a container for human action that is part of an even larger cosmic design. There are layers to our reality, and those layers are interconnected. The earth, humans, animals, trees, grass, mushrooms, and air are all partnered to one another and are all dependent upon one another for life and survival. And so we must ask, what is happening with the earth during the plagues? There are instances within many of the plagues where boundaries are present. When the Nile River is turned to blood, commentators note that only the Egyptians were affected by this plague, not the Jews. The commentary continues, quote, in fact, if an Egyptian needed water, he had to buy it from a Jew. But if he took it by force, the water changed to blood as soon as it came into his possession. End quote. This point about boundaries is also evident in the fourth plague, the swarm of wild beasts. In chapter 8, verses 18 to 19, God says, quote, I shall set apart the land of Goshen upon which my people stand that there shall be no swarm there, so that you will know that I am Hashem in the midst of the land. I shall make a distinction between my people and your people. End quote. The same is true for the plague of the epidemic, whereby the Torah tells us that, quote, Hashem shall distinguish between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, and not a thing that belongs to the children of Israel will die. End quote. This is chapter 9, verse 4. The only loophole to this premise that I could think of is regarding the plague of lice. This is, after all, one of the reasons that Jacob insisted that he be buried in Eretz Yisrael, 
for he knew that the soil of Egypt would one day be turned to lice. But this doesn't suggest that his body would have been affected. Only Egyptian land would have been sullied, so this is somewhat of a moot point. The primary matter to emphasize, though, is that the Torah is quite clear about this fact. Where the Jews lived, the earth wasn't affected by the plagues in the same way. This is particularly evident throughout plagues 4 through 6. This is wild beasts, the epidemic, and boils, whereby the narrative stresses that these three plagues did not affect the Jewish people, which demonstrated that God controlled all minutia of earthly happenings. This is because the onslaught of plagues are demonstrating a general pattern. Three sets of three plagues each, which are establishing three eternal principles. One, the existence of Hashem. Two, that God's providence extends to earthly affairs and he is not oblivious to material matters. And three, God is unmatched by any power. The implications of this second principle are quite ecologically profound because it implies that the earth and humans are mutually dependent upon one another. If they weren't, God's providence wouldn't have extended to both Egyptian people and Egyptian land, which suggests a partnership or an interconnection of some kind. The earth is certainly capable of protesting against violations of natural law. When humans take certain actions to disrupt natural order, there are consequences. This is evidenced by a simple ecological principle, such as homeostasis. Homeostasis is a fancy word to describe how the earth is always trying to maintain some sort of equilibrium and balance between all its parts. And when human beings force one of those parts out of balance, the earth pushes back to maintain a certain order. The earth speaks to us in this way, through patterns and living signs. Ramban and other rabbinical sources explain that people throughout history have known how to alter nature and utilize the powers that are built into creation. Through incantations or various forms of magic, people were able to override the laws of nature. But if nature is manipulated in the wrong way and for the wrong purposes, there are consequences. And this is what we are seeing throughout Parashat Vayera. There are several instances in the narrative where Pharaoh and his necromancers are using a form of magic to replicate the wonders that God is producing. We first see this when Aaron casts down his staff and it turns into a snake, which is replicated by Pharaoh's practitioners, but to no effect. In the same vein, Pharaoh and his magicians sought to duplicate the plagues, which they did, as was the case with the blood and frogs, but this magic is what provided justification for Pharaoh to not submit to Moshe and Aaron. One could presume that Pharaoh and his magicians were co-opting natural powers for their own ends, whereby they were seeking to rule over, rather than sustain a balance with, the earth. Rashi cites the Midrash when he describes how Pharaoh had proclaimed himself to be a god. The Nile River was considered an Egyptian deity and animals were being worshipped. Yet all of this is contrasted with a Jewish way of life, 
that very much integrated the forms of life that necessitated their existence. Ramban notes that Egyptians worshipped animals yet detested sheep herders and kept their flocks outside of the cities, concentrating most of them in Goshen. This is where the Jews lived. This is a form of segregation that splits life from livelihood, something that we seem to do a lot of in this modern world, and wields a form of magic that inverts a natural order. This is ultimately what idolatry is about, and the earth does push back when natural order is ignored. Tip the scales too much in one direction, and natural law breaks. Then, in step extraordinary events unexplainable by natural law, a miracle, plagues, natural disaster, God. In closing, I would like to emphasize that the plagues did not run back to back. The process for each plague to run its course took a month, but the actual duration of each plague was seven days. Rashi indicates that the lull between each plague was to serve as a warning period for Pharaoh. We also see this in chapter 8, verse 7, where the Torah says, quote, Pharaoh saw that there had been a relief and kept making his heart stubborn. End quote. The earth and God had given their warning, yet Pharaoh remained dogmatic and refused to alter his thinking. In chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, we read of how Moshe threw handfuls of soot from the furnace heavenward, which initiates the plague of boils and blisters. Rashi notes that this word, boils, in Hebrew shechin, implies heat, which was the last of the set of plagues that established God's providence in earthly affairs. To me, this sounds a lot like fossil fuels and climate change, but do I need to state the obvious? Will we take action during the lulls that are provided for us, or will we make our hearts stubborn? What unhealthy forms of our own bending of nature are keeping us from seeing the writing on the wall? Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week. Thank you.